0: All right, I'll tell you what, let's start with prayer, then we'll just dig right into Romans chapter 12, see how far we can get tonight. Hey, dearest Heavenly Father, we just come before you, and we've come because we're hungry to know your word better. And so, God, we just ask that you would take this time, that you would meet with us here, that you would direct our hearts, help us to have understanding that we've never had before, an insight that we've never seen before, because your spirit is... In this place, directing us into truth. God, help me as the teacher to stay absolutely true to scripture. Help me to be honest about the things I don't know and to be affirming and, and strong about the things that are. And God, we just ask thee, be with us tonight in your precious name. Amen. All right, Romans chapter 12, uh, starting in verse 9. Here's what it says Love must be sincere. Uh, when is love not sincere? Come on, we got Mike Runners. When is love not sincere? When When it's selfish. Okay, and what what does it take for love to be selfish? Okay, so we got a hand right here, Mr. Mike Runner. Oof, there you go.
1: From Christ. Okay, what? Anything apart from Christ.
0: Anything apart from Christ? Okay, so here's where I'm going to pause on that. Is I, I think it's possible for somebody who doesn't even know Christ to potentially have a selfless love. I, I think there's moments when mothers do things for their children that are, that are just unthinkably selfless in that moment. So I, I think there can be a selfless love that's apart from Christ. But the part I think you did hit the nail on the head is is that any Christ-like love will always be selfless. So wh- how else can love be selfish or self interested?
1: I don't know if it is deeper than just what's on the surface. It's not just being kind, but or saying what you someone wants to hear, but sometimes it's being
0: Can you turn her up a little bit? I can't hear her.
1: I can yell I'm There mom. you go. Okay.
0: So let's try let's try it again. Because <laughs> whatever you said was really important and we almost missed it.
1: Um, that it's more than just being kind and saying what would not challenge somebody, but sometimes it's loving them enough to challenge them.
0: say sometimes it's loving them enough to challenge them, which is so interesting because it's it very often in our minds, we think challenging somebody is not very loving, and yet sometimes it's the most loving thing we could possibly do in the moment. Love must be sincere. And so we said, love sometimes is not sincere when it's being selfish. So how does that show up? How is there such a thing as selfish love? Okay. So whoop, okay, we got one back there. Go ahead and go, and then we got one up here too. When it's done for personal gain. When it's done for personal gain. Okay.
1: Um. Yeah. When you're looking for something in return. Say it again. When you're looking for something in return.
0: When you're looking for something in return. Broadly, when you're looking for anything other than the gain of the person you're loving. It's, it's, there is nothing to be gained, not just for yourself, but for anyone else, other than the fact that you are loving the person. Okay, so let me ask you some questions real quick. All right, so we had one more real quick. Real quick, and then we'll do it.
1: And it's Conditional.
0: When it's conditional. And I think I think there's there's a really great kind of a, a grid to run love through. It is not love if it is love if. So in other words, I love you if you perform. I love you if you behave a certain way. Then I love you. Well, that's not love, right? If. And love never has because. I love you because. I love you because you're really good looking. I love you because you make me feel better about myself. Think about that for a second. I love you because when I'm with you, I'm happy. If you stop and think about that, then isn't that in some ways kind of selfish? Now, don't mean you are wrong. I'm not telling you it's wrong to feel happy when you're with the right person. I'm not saying that. It's just that can't be why you love them. Does that make sense? That can't be why. Because here's what I'm going to promise you. No matter how happy that person makes you feel right now, give it six months. There's going to be moments when they don't make you real happy to be with them. And those are the moments when love is going to be most required in the relationship. In the the moments when it's not easy to be with you. In the moments when I'm pretty darn sure you are absolutely wrong and I am absolutely right. And you're just too silly to see it. It, it, It's really hard to love you uh, right now. So when you and I think about that, then I think you and I suddenly have to go back and say, hey, how pure has my love been? If I didn't get anything from that person, if, if, if they started behaving poorly, would I still love them? And when you start asking those what if, you know, what, what, if, what if the things that are most endearing, most enjoyable about them were suddenly gone would I still love them? And if the answer is, honestly, you know what? I don't know. I don't know that I even want to hang out with them if those things were gone. Then the reality is you probably don't love them. You may like them, but you probably don't love them. Because love says, I am absolutely committed to you, and it's not based on any performance from you. The The easiest way, guys, to somehow understand this, and it's really... It's re, Moms do this for children intuitively, right? Dads, we don't do that. If that kid can't jump 10 feet in the air and get an NFL contract, we're not sure. We like them. But moms do this naturally, right? I mean, it's just a very intuitive thing. Here's the part that I find so surprising about this, is that in our marriages, we very seldom offer that type of unconditional love. We want our spouse to perform a certain way and when they don't, we suddenly say, hey, I don't think I love you anymore. And yet the reality is the person in our life, apart from Jesus Christ, who is to have unconditional love from us, is our spouse. The reality is if we truly love, there would be no such thing as divorce. Because we would love unconditionally. But part of that is they, then they wouldn't cheat either, right? So, but again, unconditional love. Love that is sincere. All right, so back to the passage. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. So what do you think Paul is pushing at us when he says, hey, you you just need to hate things that are evil? Okay, so while you're thinking about it, let me give a little bit of help. In this case, and several times in Scripture, when you get to the word hate, it's not talking about an emotion. It's talking about a separation. It's, it's saying, hey, look, I'm just not going to have anything to do with that. I'm, I'm going to be out of relationship, out of proximity. I'm not going to be anywhere near that. It's kind of what uh, Scripture said when it said, uh, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. God didn't hate Esau. He just said, I'm not going to work with Esau. I'm not going to use Esau. I'm going to use Jacob instead, okay? And I'm not going to be in relationship. That's not what I'm going to do. So it's not talking about an emotion. You don't have to have an emotion and hate evil emotionally. But what do you think it's saying when Paul is pushing at us and saying, hey, you should be keeping out of proximity. You should have nothing to do with. You shouldn't be in any sort of relationship with things that are evil. Huh? With sin. Yeah, if it's, if it's sinful, if it has any sort of darkness to it, then you and I, as children of the light, don't have any business being around it, in it, or enjoying it. What do you think that verse would have to say about the type of movies we go to? Hmm. Well, that's, I don't know that that's true. Uh, I can tell you that every once in a while I have a desire to go to the type of movie I don't need to go to, right? But I have to make a conscious decision not to go to that. What about the TV shows we watch? If, if we were saying, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm just not going to have anything that's evil. I'm not going to be around that. I wonder, I wonder how much our TV watching would change. And let me, let me explain to you something. I'm not saying that, you know, every movie you go to has to be a Christian movie. I'm, I'm not saying that. And we, the truth is, guys, there'd be very few movies to go to, and they'd all be crummy. Because if you've gone to very many Christian movies, right? I mean, most of them are pretty weak. That's not what I'm saying here. I'm saying that you've got to be very, very careful... If you're thinking about going to a movie or watching a TV show or maybe going to a party or a gathering of people where the primary purpose of the movie, the primary purpose of the gathering is to do evil things. Does that make sense? All right, let let me see if I can help you with this. So you guys know that I was a youth pastor for an awful lot of years. And one of the things, every single year, you'd have a group of kids that said, hey, they're having a big party, you know, at so-and-so's house. And we all want to, you know, we all want to take off and go to the party. And so every year, we'd have to have discussion about, hey, is it appropriate for Christians to go to that type of a party? And, of course, then the kids would come back and go, well, since we're not going to drink at the underage drinking party... And since we're not going to go in the back room and have sex like the other kids are going in the back room and having sex at the underage drinking party, and we're not going to do drugs like the other kids are doing drugs at the underage drinking party, then it's okay for us to go there because actually we're being a testimony. We're being a witness to our friends. And I would say, No, you're not. No, you're not. You're simply being curious. And they say, Whoa, 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 wait a minute. You go to restaurants, and in that restaurant, they serve alcohol or they, whatever that is, right? And I say, guys, look, 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 Here's the difference. Here's the difference. Where you're planning to go, that party you're planning to attend, the very purpose of the party is to pursue evil. It's teenagers in that moment looking to go do that which they should not be doing, and they'd be embarrassed if God saw them doing when I sit in the restaurant, God, I'm not going to be embarrassed to have God see me eating a steak. It's just it's not. It's just not. Okay? So I think you and I have got to look and be very careful when you say, Hey, what TV show am I going to watch? And guys, there's, you know, there's very few things that you would call Christ-like TV shows. But I do think you and I have to kind of navigate and figure out a line that says, But if that TV show is about promoting darkness, The very purpose of the show is to push a dark agenda. Or a very anti-Christian thing. Not that something anti-Christian doesn't happen on the show. I mean, if you watch a Y5O or if you watch CSI, something non-Christian is probably going to happen on the show. But was the purpose of the show to promote things which were not of God? Versus there are some things on TV, and there's some things you go and see on movies, where the entire gist of the movie is Hangover 2. Now, you get to decide, I'm just saying, in light of the verse, what do we want to do? Okay? So it's just a thought for the night. There you go. <sighs> if you get mad, don't write any emails. If you do, write all of your emails to martysawyers.com at uh, CSD. All right. Uh, then it goes on to say, be devoted to one another, uh, honor one another above yourselves. What do you think that means to honor others above yourselves? Huh? What is it? I think in family we do this a lot of times, don't we? In family we choose to honor others above ourselves within the family context. But I think this is actually in the church context that's talking here. And guys, can I just say this out loud to you? If you're not living in the church in enough rooms of community that you actually have the opportunity to interact with people enough, that you actually have the opportunity to honor one another, then you're probably still a consumer and you still haven't really become the church. And, And one thing you should hear me say out loud in a room like this, this is a great Bible study and I love that we're here and I love that we're all going a little deeper in the word of God, but you realize this room doesn't afford a ton of community. So you need to hear me say as your pastor, I hope you're in community somewhere besides this room. I hope you're serving with a group of people and those people are your friends. Or I hope you're in a small church or in a small group. I don't care where you're finding community, but you need to have community so that your life is rubbing up against the lives of other believers. And a room like this that's primarily a study doesn't give you enough community to have that happen. All right, so what else? Honoring one another above ourselves. How else does that get displayed? How else could that show up? At work, yeah. Hey, it's so, it's somebody else maybe made a mess or did something, and you just choose to go take care of that for them, and it's kind of an honoring thing, right? But it's this idea of not looking for the spotlight. Yourself, have you ever have you ever been around one of those people who always wants the praise and accolades, even for the things they didn't do? You ever been around a person like that? Don't you don't you, don't you just when they do that when they, you know. Every, you know, everybody worked real hard, but they go, man, you know, yeah, yeah, I was glad to do it for you, yeah. You know, and they take all the praise themselves. Don't you just want to go behind them and go in the back of the head? Don't you want know to thump them a little bit? Have you ever seen the opposite of that? Have you seen a person who, when they began to be praised, deferred the praise? And in that moment they said, well, oh, no, no, you, you know, it was really Jim. I mean, Jim worked his head off to make this happen. And they took the spotlight, they took the praise, and they gave it to somebody else. You ever watch someone do that? And here's the interesting thing about that. Although it probably did give Jim some recognition, and Jim was probably thrilled to go, wow, someone noticed all my hard work, and that was great. But you want to know something really interesting in that moment when they deferred the accolade? How did Jim feel about the person who recognized them in that moment? Pretty proud, right? Man, that, that guy is a great guy. That gal's a great gal. She didn't hog the spotlight. And the person who originally offered the accolade when they went, Oh, you know, it's really Jim. Did they think any less of the person when they deferred the praise somewhere else? No, chances are they probably thought more. Isn't it interesting that in honoring someone else, you actually inadvertently receive more honor for yourself? Isn't that interesting? Back to the passage. Uh, Verse 11, never be lacking in zeal. Another way of saying that is just determination. Uh, Don't let there be a moment that you're just not absolutely committed and determined to say, hey, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to stay on track. But keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope. Why does he have to say to us to be joyful in hope? Why do you think? All right, let me say it a different way. Why is it hard to be joyful when you're hoping? Because you want it now. It hasn't happened yet. You're probably worried about whether it really is going to happen, kind of like the loan on the buildings for me, right? And it can be hard, can't it, to stay joyful when you're hoping? Every, every single girl in this room knows exactly what I'm talking about, all right? Um, every guy who's working for a pay raise knows what I'm talking about, right? It's hard to remain joyful in hope, okay? Let's keep going. Be joyful in hope. Be patient. Watch this. Because if, if that one wasn't already hard, be patient in affliction, Doesn't that just seem wrong? Shouldn't, shouldn't you be saying, look for the quickest way out of affliction? Uh, Pray that God delivers you from affliction. Um, Solve whatever problem you have when you're in affliction. And instead, he says, be patient in affliction. Why would God ever want us to remain in affliction? Let's just be honest. This goes against our very core, doesn't it? I mean, when's the last person you said, someone said, hey, I've got a little bit of affliction. Anybody interested? You raised your hand. You said, man, 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 just afflict me. It's been a while. I need a little more affliction in my life. Isn't this the very thing we run from? Isn't this the very thing that we work every single day saying, how do I make sure I don't suffer? How do I make sure I don't have to live with problems? How do I do that? And yet here it says, be patient in affliction. Let me ask you a question. Are there any benefits to affliction? Come on, mic runners. You got to look. You got to look. We got hands all over this room. You're missing them. It builds perseverance and character.
1: Hmm.
0: Yeah, James chapter 1. Remember James chapter 1? If you want, to hop over there with me real quick. That, that passage that we all wish we could just kind of take scissors and cut out of our Bibles. James chapter 1, starting in verse 2. Consider it pure joy. Doesn't that sound familiar? Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Okay? Why are we so pain averse? Okay. Why are we pain averse?
1: Oh, I was going to answer the other question. Oh,
0: answer the other question then. (laughs)
1: Well, I was just going to say that it grows. I'll give
0: you ten extra points if you answer this question.
1: (laughs) I don't know that one.
0: (laughs) Okay. Okay. I I was going to say from the from the life of Joseph, all that Christ did, or all that the Lord did with His pain that He had. You know, all the pain that he went through, it was to prepare him for what happened Hmm. later on in his life. So when we have pain and affliction, we know that God's at work in our lives. And the reason why we try to avoid it is because it hurts. Hmm. Let me just throw a hypothetical question at If the greatest lessons we learn in life come on the other side of pain, then if we were to live our entire life in comfort, we would learn very little. Which means then that God would never be able to be able to greatly use our life because we wouldn't have the maturity or the strength to be trusted with great things. Does that make sense? And if it's through... The hardest moments of my life that God does his best work and prepares me for the most. And I love, I love the illustration of Joseph. Here's a guy who spends almost his entire life living in unfairness. He's sold by his brothers when he's still probably between 14 and 16. He goes to Potiphar's house. He does nothing but a good job. He's falsely accused. He ends up spending an incredible amount of time in jail. His entire early adulthood is lived in harsh unfairness. And yet God uses him because of what he's learned in a jail cell to become the number two ruler in Egypt. And guys, here's what I'm going to tell you. Joseph wasn't ready for that assignment when he was 14. When he was 14, he was an arrogant, self-puffed up young man. And God prepared him through pain And yet your and my greatest desire is always comfort and safety. And the reality is those two things fight the very hand of God. No wonder the Apostle Paul said that I would be considered worthy to suffer for Jesus Christ. Because he knew underneath that was that God was preparing him for greater assignment in his life. And guys, at the end of the day, if the goal in life is to have looked like Jesus and to have honored Jesus, then you just need to know pain will be part of that life. It just will. Pain will be part of that call. Yep.
1: Um, So I have a question about, or a thought, I guess, about why we avoid pain. Yeah. I'm wondering if it goes back to the fall and that we were created to be perfect in a perfect world where there would have been no pain yeah. and this longing and desire to get back to that. Yeah.
0: And the reality is pain is a part of this broken world that we manufactured. It is. Uh, if we had if we had played our cards right in the garden, it would be a totally different story. We, we would have never known pain. All right. Back to the passage. Um... Be patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. That means I share what I have. I give it, I, I'm, I allow you to come and, and share in it with me. Uh, you can come to my house. Let's hang out. We're going to be together. Bless those, get this one, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now guys, think about he didn't say just don't spit on people who persecute you. Uh, don't run them over with your car. He says, look at that, word, bless. Bless those who persecute you. Let me ask you a question. When's the last time you blessed somebody who was really, really mean to you? Isn't that interesting? And yet, that's exactly what Scripture says. Bless those who persecute. Matter of fact, uh, Jesus uh, has a similar uh, conversation with us. It's in Matthew chapter 5. So go with me to Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. This was Jesus teaching the Sermon on the Mount. And here's what he said. You have heard that it has been said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I'm not asking for anything. I, I just want to be even. See, I'm not saying you knock out one tooth, I want to knock out ten of yours. I just want to be even. You poke out an eye, I want to poke out yours. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go 1 mile, go with them 2 miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So Jesus in essence says exactly the same thing. You you and I are to show kindness, goodness to the person who's not being kind or good to us. Matthew chapter 5 when it says go, if someone asks you to go a mile, go a second mile. Who knows the background of that? Anybody? Okay, what's going on? You can yell it, they're, they're not going to get there. Here he comes, here he comes, all right, here he comes. He's getting there.
1: Um, A Roman soldier could ask a citizen or a bystander on the road to carry his gear for a mile because they had to walk long distances with lots of heavy gear. Yeah,
0: so there it is. So here's what happened. Uh, Rome, in order to fill its armies, would conscript all young men, take them off the war. You had to serve in the Roman army somewhere between four and seven years. So not a small thing but as you were leaving the roman army as you were coming back you were allowed to bring some of your supplies and some of the spoils of war that you had and so now you're carrying this big old pack and you got to make it all the way to home cuz you may, you who knows where you were you might have been in spain when they finally said hey your seven years is up so head on home and then you had to start walking home with this big old pack on your back and part of roman law was that as you were heading or carrying you could uh conscript any young boy that you saw along the way, and that boy was required to carry your pack for about a mile uh, for you. And so, if you're the Roman soldier while you're walking, you're, you're just scanning, looking for young boys to be able to do that for you. If you're a young boy outside praying with your friends, you're scanning to make sure you don't see any Roman soldiers anywhere near And if you just so happened to be the one kid who was too busy kicking the can or doing whatever was going on, and all of a sudden you felt a tap on your shoulder, and here's a Roman soldier with his pack, your first inkling was, crud, crud, he caught me, right? And why didn't my friends tell me? I was wondering why they were all running away, you know, and now here I am. And the Roman soldier could then say to you, hey, you've got to carry this pack a mile. You were obligated. Jesus said to those young boys, and in some way to you and I. If that moment comes, and stop and think about this. Not only is the boy going, okay, so you're running my day. You've messed up my fun. But you also got to remember it's the Rome. Which means these are the people that conquered your village. These are the people that conquered your country. These are the people that have levied all sorts of taxes on you. These are the people that have their Roman guard making sure that none of you get out of line. And the reality is you despise the Romans. And now this guy who represents everything that you hate is now requiring you to carry his pack for a mile. So you just need to know, in this moment, there's absolutely no love lost. Uh, this, is, this, is ju- this is a moment that that young boy carries that pack for that mile, counting every step begrudgingly so that when he takes that 5,280th step, he can stop, throw that pack off, and run back to his friends. Jesus says, no, 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 no. If you end up compelled to go a mile, go a second mile. It's an interesting moment, isn't it? Think about this. Think about it not so much from the part of the boy. Think about it from the eyes of the Roman soldier. You're you're heading on home. You can't wait to get back to your family. You are getting weary carrying your pack and tired, and you begin to scan the horizon to find someone to carry your pack, And and there's a group of young men up there messing around, hanging out. You're able to walk up. Several of them see you and disperse. But the one kid, the one kid that was busy pulling legs off a grasshopper, I don't know what he was doing. And you tapped him on the shoulder and you said, hey, carry my pack. And you saw it in his eyes. You saw the disdain and maybe in a little hatred mixed in. And so you walked the mile. And then you turn to the boy and you say, you're done. You can go now. But somewhere in that first mile, that little boy remembered a teacher named Jesus who said, if you end up compelled to carry a pack for a mile, carry it too. And you decide. You decide today, I'm going to do what Jesus asked me. And so you say to the Roman soldier, no, 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 no. I'll I'll carry it another mile. Now, if you're the Roman soldier, what's your response? Why? You don't need to. You're free. Your obligation is done. Why would you do that? And now this young boy begins to tell you about this teacher who told him that if he was ever forced to carry a pack a mile, that he ought to carry it too. And you can almost hear that Roman soldier say, what else did he say? And now you begin to give the Sermon on the Mount. And, and or would you be shocked as they walked along that second mile if after a while he said, well, boy, tell me about your parents. And how far are you in school? And that by the time you finish the second mile, the man who started as your enemy on the first mile is actually your friend on the second mile. And Jesus knew that. And when you and I have people who abuse us and hurt us and do things that are hurtful and harmful to us they expect you and I to lash back they expect you and I to be angry and vile and hateful in that moment remember how many how many guys in here remember when you were eight and on the playground you would sneak up behind the girl you liked and punch her in the arm how many remember that oh get out of you bunch of liars all right How many girls remember that boy? Okay, there you go. There you go. And you were that boy you got. All right. And when you did that, when you ran about and you punched, you immediately did what after you punched? You run. Because your full expectation, you got to remember, at eight years old, girls are about the same size as boys. So your full expectation was she was going to haul off and whap you one. Right? So you run. Because the expectation is when you hurt somebody, they're going to react. How different is it if in that moment you do something kind? And here's what Jesus understood. When someone has hurt you, guess where their eyes automatically go? To you. Because they're waiting for you to punch them. They're waiting for you to react. And if in that moment, instead of looking like everybody else in the world, you look like Jesus, it will change everything. And you actually get to give a sermon. Matter of fact, here's what it says. Ready? Verse 17. Do not repay evil for evil, but be careful uh, to do what is right uh, in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible... Yeah, possible, it depends on you. Live at peace with everyone, and so do not take advantage, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. That's a really cool verse, because it's saying, hey, you don't have to take vengeance. God will spank those people eventually. It's okay. And I actually have that one hanging over my desk in big letters. No, I'm teasing. All right, and uh, and it is written, "It is mine to avenge; I will repay says the Lord." On the contrary, ready. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, watch this. Ready. In doing this, and in that moment when they hurt you the most, you do the kindest thing to them possible. In doing this, you will heap coals, burning coals, on their head. Isn't that cool? They burn to death if you're nice to them. You get that's not what he's saying, right? What do you think those burning coals are? Conviction. Conviction. Because in that moment, he says, Man, I was just evil. I was just wrong. I was just hurtful. They'd have every right to come back and hit me. In that moment, she says, I just gossiped about her. I just said horrible things about her. She has every right to post things about me. And so now their eyes are turned to see how we retaliate. And if in that moment, you and I instead show the love of Jesus, we go the second mile, we do nothing but bless them, we suddenly become a sermon to them, and their hearts are filled with conviction. Burning coals. The truth is, how we treat our enemies may be the most powerful sermon we ever preach. Okay, back to the passage. Uh, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Okay, we're getting ready to hit chapter 13. We are blazing tonight. And uh, this is actually a super, super uh, cool passage. Here we go. Romans chapter 13. I'm going to read a couple of verses, and then we're going to try to unpack this thing because these verses are going to blow most of our minds. You ready? Romans chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Let everyone, how many people? Everyone be subject to the governing authorities, to whoever's been placed as an authority in their life, for there is no authority Except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God, even the crummy ones. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on the bad authority, on themselves. For rulers do not hold terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear from the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for you for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath that bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full-time governing. Give to everyone that you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Super, super, super hard. So let's go back, let's unpack it together. Let everyone, all of us, be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. So, is he actually saying that sometimes God establishes bad authorities? Okay, so for all of us that are not in our heads, what about World War II Germany? What about World War Two, Italy with Mussolini? What about people living in communist Russia all those years? Were those God-given established authorities? Okay, so we got a hand.
1: Did not Jesus tell Pontius Pilate he had... Uh... The authority to uh, crucify him.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Don, if you remember, it's a great reference. Jesus is standing before Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate says, Hey, aren't you going to answer me? Don't you realize I have the power to crucify you, to kill you? And Jesus says, You have no authority except what my Father's given you. And you're talking about, and stop and think about it, hey guys, if you think you've seen a bad government, you ha- you have not read Roman history. These guys are in massive orgies homosexuality is running rampant during this time there's vile corruption in all of the revenue systems that's going on during this period of time there's horrible unfairness to anybody who's not an actual roman citizen i mean you talk about vile that was a vile period and in that moment remember what's the book called the book of what book are we in romans so when he talks about submitting to authority guess who he's talking about submitting to the rotten crummy horrible romans and then he says, think about this, and the Romans are all pagan idol worshipers. And he says, you submit to authority because all authority is God-given. Yep.
1: I have two questions. The first yeah. one um, has to do with a previous um, verse, but this one in particular is that Jesus also said that when he came, he came to fulfill the law, and to fulfill the prophecies that were written when John the Baptist baptized him, correct? Yes. So that would mean that all authority is under God's hand um, in order to fulfill the prophecies that lead us up to mm-hmm. Revelation, the series we just finished a little while ago. Okay. Um, now, my second question. Part of the question has to do with the previous verse. What happens in this world today is that we're being taught um, how to... um, If There are people who overly love themselves and others who don't care enough about themselves. And the ones that are learning how to love themselves and assert themselves and learn boundaries and set limits... Um, according to a healthy way of living in this world and not to be taken advantage in this day is a little different story than the people who are born and raised in uh, every good luxury have a good sense of themselves and are pompous and think highly of themselves who need to be brought down so i'm trying to reconcile that with the word of christ um, to do good to others is very easy for some and for others can take advantage very easily. How does that all fit together?
0: Yeah. So we may actually want to talk a little bit afterwards because that's that's a big question, you know, that'll take us other directions. But here's the, here's the one real quick thing I'll say about that and then we'll get back on. I don't think at the end of the day the critical question is how much I love myself. I just don't think it is. If I love myself too little, if I love myself too... I don't think that's a critical question. I think the critical question is, how much does Jesus love me? Because at the end of the day, the only person who affixes a value to me is Jesus. And Jesus went to a cross and said, you're worth dying for. So I don't measure myself by how many football trophies I have or what type of home I was raised in or whether I think I'm good looking or whether I think I'm ugly. It doesn't matter. I don't have any right to fix value on me. And the person who puts too much value on themselves and says, I'm just all that and I'm better than you, you know, you don't. You don't have any right to affix value because the the only person who can affix value on you is Jesus Christ. He's already set the price. And ironically, the price is equal for all of us, which means there is nobody better than the other person, right? Even if you're talented, even if you're good looking, there is nobody better or worth more than the next because Jesus has set the price. So I, I really think it's a mistake when we tell our kids, hey, you need to learn to love yourself. No, you don't. You need to accept the price that Jesus put on you. You need to know that God loved you enough to die for you. That's what you need to know. Period. Because once you understand that, then you can live in wholeness and hell. But let's go, let's go back real quick. Is even bad authority established by God. We're saying yes. All right, so let's do that real quick. How many say yes? Even bad authorities establishes God. How many say, oh, I'm a little worried about that? You know, I don't, uh, okay, all right, good. It's fine, because this is really a hard thing to get. So here's what I'm going to suggest to you. I'm going to suggest to you that because God is in control and because this happens the way that God is saying, hey, God establishes our authority, that God gives us the authority that we, one of two things. He either gives us the authority we deserve, or he gives us the authority we need. One of those two. But he does that as he establishes authority. So let me give you one for the authority we deserve. Do you remember Israel? And uh, Israel, as uh, they were going through the time of the judges, okay? And they say, hey, we want a king just like every other country, we, we feel like we're inferior because all these other countries have a king and we don't have a king. So God, you've got to give us a king. And God said back to them through their prophet, no, I'm your king. You don't need a human king. I'm your king. And they said, no, 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 no. We want a king we can see and a king we can touch and a king we can hear from, you know, audibly. We want a king. And God says, no, I'm your king you should be satisfied with me. And they come back again and they say, no, 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 no. We want a king. That's what we want. Give us a king. Do you remember the king that God gives to Israel? Saul. Okay. So stop and think a minute. Here's Israel. God saying, hey, you don't need a king because I'm your king. They in response are saying, no, 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 God, we know better than you. We need a king. We don't care what you think. This is what we want. So what are some of the what are some of the behaviors or heart conditions that they're, just, they're exhibiting when they say to God, God, we know better than you. We need a king even though you don't think we need a king. What are they doing? You can just yell it out. Self-centered. Self-centered. Pride. Well, pride. No trust. What else? Huh? Scared. 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 Okay. Arrogant. All right. I love all those. God then says, okay, all right. All right. I'll relent. I'll give you a king. I'll give you Saul. Anybody want to give me the uh, attributes of King Saul? Self-centered, prideful, no trust, scared, and arrogant. And God said, "Okay, if this is how you're going to be, I'll give you the king you deserve. That's what I'll do. If if this is how you're going to be, and if this is going to be, I'll give you a king that looks just like you. I'll give you the king you deserve. Which is why, guys, I'm just going to say this out loud. I really do believe that the the moral and spiritual condition of our country matters, because you and I will end up with leaders that reflect the moral and spiritual condition of our people, because God will give you and me the leaders we." deserve. The other is sometimes God gives us the leaders we need, right? I think this, we already used the story, but it still helps us right now. Here's the story of Joseph. Remember, Joseph gets unfairly sold into slavery. He ends up in Potiphar's house where he gets falsely accused, and Potiphar doesn't have the wisdom to see past the false accusation. Uh, he ends up in a jail cell, and, he, and his leader in the jail cell is a guard running the prison. And all through that, you go, wow, I, man, that, I don't know that that's the type of leaders I would ever choose for myself. And yet, in that case, we watch, in Joseph's case, every one of those moments, when Joseph begins to lead, remember, Potiphar had a lack of wisdom, Joseph learned to use wisdom. Right? Joseph had to start at the very, very bottom. He learns what it means to have to listen to authority that you don't necessarily like. And so when he leads, he leads with tons of grace. So those were the leaders Joseph needed to be prepared to do the job God was going to do with Joseph. And here's what you need to know, and this is why Scripture can say, whatever leader you have, you need to be careful because there's a real good chance God has assigned that leader to your life because you either get the leader you deserve or you get the leader you need. Okay? All right. Let's go. How much time do we have? You turned it off. Huh? Twelve minutes. All right. So let's go here, through this uh, for a second or two more, and then we're going to talk about what do you do if you've got a really, really bad leader and you think you need to leave the leader. Okay? All right, so let's go back in. Here we go, uh, verse two. Consequently, whoever rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has in- instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the one in authority? Then do what's right, and you'll be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for good, for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. Rulers do not bear the sword for no reason; they are God's servants. Agents of wrath to bring punishment to the wrongdoer. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. Okay, so let's talk for a second. When we talk about somebody being our leader simply because of the role they have in our lives, what type of authority do we call that? Positional authority. Okay. We have lost this in American culture. Uh, we have lost this idea that says, hey, if somebody holds a position, there is a minimum level of respect that is required for the position. Okay. That simply because they're there, because they hold that position over me, I'm required to show them a certain level of respect because of the position. Uh, we swang this, probably sometime in the 70s, completely the other direction. We said, no, 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 no. I'm not going to show anybody respect until they earn it. Which you realize that's a completely unbiblical statement. It's a completely unbiblical statement. The Bible just said, there are people in your life who, based on position, now, deserve a minimum level of authority or a minimum level of respect. Now, it's fine to say, hey, once I've shown that required level of respect, if someone really leads well, then I'm going to give them more respect because they've earned it. Does that make sense? But you can't take this respect away because they don't have to earn this respect. This respect is the minimum level of respect that comes with the position. Are we nodding our heads? Yeah. All right, all right, let's do this. Give me give me some positional authority. Give me some some people that are in positional authority in our lives. Parents. Police. Teachers. Huh? Coaches. What can you say that last one really loud? Can you stand up and say that last one really loud? Pastors. The boss. Government. Huh? The president. You know what? There was a, um, it was a really, really cool moment. I don't know if you guys saw this or not when it happened. Obama had just beat John McCain. And I don't know if you remember. That was a very tough moment campaign on both sides and I don't care which side you were in favor of or not in favor of but there was a really 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 amazing moment when they went to John McCain after he had just lost the election they had just announced that Obama had won the election and they said to him because it'd been pretty contentious as they were doing it what are you going to do now and he said I'm going to honor my president because he's my president what was John McCain saying I may have disagreed with this man. I may have not wanted this man to have that particular position in my life, but he now holds that position and there is a minimum level of respect that that man deserves simply because he holds the position. And he said, I'll give him that honor. Which I thought was, you know, and, and again, I, I've got some of you know, my opinions about John McCain. I thought that was an absolutely class-filled moment uh, in his life. Yep. Yes, President, Obama Obama? President Obama. I'm sorry. Good correction, good catch. He is my president for a little while longer. <laughs> so. All right, positional positional authority. Um, l- let me why do you think God thinks positional authority is a big deal? Come on, runners. Runners, you need to stop going all the way to the back because then you have to run them out because the only people answering questions are on the front row. So it's right here. Why is is positional authority a big deal to God?
1: Because if you can't practice that and respect that, how are you going to respect authority that, like God's authority that when he's not right in front of you?
0: I love it. Hey, guys, 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 guys. If you struggle with positional authority... I guarantee you there's going to be a moment in your life when God's going to ask you to do something and you're going to read that passage of scripture, you're going to hear that sermon, and you're going to go, that stinks. I hate that command. I hate that rule in the Bible. I hate it. And if you don't understand positional authority, you'll actually think you have the right to veto God. And what you need to be saying in that moment is, hey, I, I may just 100% disagree with God. I'm not sure why he said to love my enemy. I, I, I don't like that he said that particular passage. But he's God. And because he's God, I'm required to obey positional authority. And w- guys, if, if we don't teach our kids to obey our parents, see, I, I, I hear people other times say, the worst thing you can say to your kids is because I told you so. That's the best thing you can say to your kids. It's okay to say, because I'm your dad and I asked you to do it. That's enough. You don't have to explain everything to them. Now don't be wrong. I think it's good to explain some things. I'm just telling you, it's perfectly okay to say, I asked you to carry out the trash and I'm your dad and there shouldn't be any discussion. I'm your dad. Positional authority. I think it's completely fine for a dad to step in when a kid is sassing back their mom and say, you will not do that again. That's your mom. And you will show her honor. Even though I think your mom's wrong this time. But you don't say that in front of the kid. You don't say that in front of the kid, right? You say that to mom in the bedroom. But but you you still say, hey, I don't care. You're not going to talk to your mom like that. Why? Because you're teaching your kids to honor positional authority because, guys, someday that kid's going to walk out of your house and now the main positional authority in their life is going to be God. And if you haven't taught them to honor positional authority in your home, they're going to really struggle to give that authority to God and to do that. They just are. Yeah? Do you see a different cultural mix there with respect to positional authority than you do in the the U.S.? Or is this... generational global thing. Yeah, I would say India is far ahead of us in this. I mean, India is light years. Matter of fact, almost to the point that you and I would struggle because they're arranging marriages for their kids. And it's interesting because you'll go to a young person and say to them, Hey, uh, do you feel like you should pick your own spouse? And they'll say, no, my mom and dad are way wiser than me. They'll, They'll do a good job. So that's interesting. It's really, really interesting. Kenya is different because Kenya treats their children so badly and throws their kids away. And that that parent relationship in Kenya is so fractured. If there's a place where it's actually worse than it is in the United States, Kenya is one of those places. They, They have just fractured their homes in Kenya. Yeah.
1: Another way we've taught our son to respect positional authority is rather than say, don't talk to your mom that way. We have. My husband has said, don't talk to my wife that way. And it works really great because it mm-hmm. shows that he respects me, I respect him, and our son needs to know that as well. I,
0: however you verbalize it, I'm okay. As long as they're understanding that you have a position that requires a level of respect. and And again, guys, the respect has to be there even in the moment when you think... Respect, it's not respect if I agree with you. If I agree with you and I go, oh, yeah, and I treat you, that's not respect. That's just agreeing. Respect comes in when I disagree with you. When I think you are all wet, now how do I treat you? Now I know what respect is. Okay? So real quick, and then we got to go. Yep. Um, can it be, like, from a peer? Like, me working with
1: somebody and then somebody saying for them to respect you?
0: Yeah, I think I, I would tell you that I think there's just a certain level of respect that ought to be out there for coworkers. You know, this is my coworker. There are certain ways I should and shouldn't talk to a peer, you know? Um, and yes, there's just respect for the fact that, Hey, that's, that's, that's your friend or that's your coworker. And the truth is they should not be treated that way. Whatever. Yeah. Positional. All right. So real quick, let's go to this real quick. How much time do we have? Oh, all right. So here's what I'm going to do. We're going to leave you a cliffhanger then. What do you do when the authority over you is absolutely vile or maybe worse than that? What do you do if the authority over you is asking you to do something unbiblical? So think about that. God said, obey the authority. That would be biblical. But now the authority over you is asking you to do something that's unchristian or wrong. So either way you go, you'd be doing something unbiblical, right? So we'll talk about that next week. We'll solve that problem next week. All right. We're good? All right. Let's have a word of prayer. We'll take off. Hey, dear Lord Jesus, thank you for tonight. Thanks for a chance to be together and to study. God, help us. Help this stuff to kind of seep in. Help us to think about it during the week. Help us to process it in our hearts. But more than that, help us to move a little closer to you because of our time tonight. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys.